the moral of the story is we set the clocks back next week not this week <laughs> and placebo and placebo welcome to wherever you are my name is ryan mcneil in toronto canada you are listening to episode 232 of the matinee cast it's the movie loving podcast on the movie loving website the matinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective that was october people Canada had an election, Turkey invaded Syria, the NBA got kicked out of China, thanks to a tweet. None of the old movie directors like comic book films. A lot can happen when a guy takes a few weeks vacation, but we're back at it. And not a moment too soon, because I spent part of that aforementioned vacation catching up on fall movies. And guys, 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 there are a lot of great things out there to watch. So much so that I think back to one of my all-time favorite podcasts, and how they would probably pull together a three-hour episode during bountiful times like this. So I thought, what the hell? Get one of the people off that show to come on to my show. And while we won't be here for three hours, we'll, we'll talk quite some time about one of those aforementioned amazing movies. He was once the Grand Poobah at Row 3 and the Row 3 Cinecast. It's, uh, it has been shuttered somewhat. It still exists out there, but uh, it is now a reading only, not a writing anymore. Um, but he's an awesome friend, so I'm really happy that he was able to, uh, to dust off his mic and, and show up for, to, talk, uh, to talk some movies on a Sunday morning. We are across a wire to Minneapolis, Minnesota, talking to Andrew James from the Row 3 Cinecast. How are you, Andrew James? Fantastic, sir. How are you doing? I'm all right, man. The, the, the vacation served me well. I'm, I'm doing good. Yeah, good. It's always nice to be rested up. I'm very rested up from the microphone. It's been a good two or three months since I've been. <laughs> Did you have to blow role. dust off it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, literally, yes. <laughs> you had to run like 16 updates on your firmware. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when you now, want to do a show. Do, how do we make this microphone work and get the <laughs> headphones in sync and all that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the rust is coming off in clouds this morning, people. I, I, I fear going back into work, man. Um, on episode 232, we will be discussing Parasite. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Andrew, and I do mean more. This is Know Your Enemy. Andrew is in the rare club of seven-time guests. That means get comfortable because this recap will take a moment. On episode 27, he made his debut and we talked about The Fighter. We learned the first film he ever saw in a theater was Star Wars A New Hope. The last movie he'd seen at the time was The Social Network. The worst movie he's ever seen. I imagine this has probably changed since then, but at the time it was Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. His unseen classic or essential is Singing in the Rain. He's since seen it. And the film he wished he'd made is 28 Days Later. Andrew returned on episode 73. We talked about killing them softly. The movie he digs that nobody else does is the core. The movie everybody else likes that he does not is Bridesmaids. The last movie at the time to make him cry was 50-50. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Kate Winslet. And the movie he was watching next was something wild. Then on episode 117, we talked about Boyhood. We learned the movie that made, that made Andrew's love of film turn a corner is A Clockwork Orange. His first date movie was Chances Are... His sick day movie is Jumper, and his epitaph would be, be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Andrew came back on episode 149. We talked about The Force Awakens. We learned the movie he really digs but never wants to watch again is Elephant. The movie that genuinely freaks him out is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
The movie that always makes him laugh is The Birdcage. His favorite movie soundtrack is Pulp Fiction. And the movie he loves, but seemingly nobody else has heard of, is Shinobi Heart Under Blade. Then on episode 183, we talked about Logan Lucky. The, we learned that when he goes to the movies, he likes to sit in the third row. If he could go on a date with any movie character, he would go on a date with Scott Dolan from Best in Show. His, the dirtiest film he's ever seen is 52 Pickup. His favorite black and white movie is Dr. Strangelove. And the movie he likes, but nobody would expect him to like, is Transformers 3. Finally, last autumn, on episode 208, we talked about First Man. And we learned that his movie snack of choice is some sort of can of energy drink. The movie world he would go spend a day in is some zombie world. So Dawn of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, emphasis on the world day because the day ends and he gets to leave unscathed. The good scene in a bad movie, his favorite good scene in a bad movie is the Thunderdome fight in Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome. The most violent movie he's ever seen is The Passion of the Christ. And his movie monologue that he would like to deliver is Independence Day, the speech given by Bull Pullman, apparently given by somebody as a best man speech somewhere out there right. uh, from the 1996 disaster classic. Okay, time for round seven. Andrew James, if you met a person who had never, ever seen a movie before, what would you show them? So funny enough, this was a, a homework assignment on one of our Row three cinecasts way back when and i could not find that episode and i couldn't find what my answer was but for some reason the answer that sticks in my head most is the wizard of oz uh oh absolutely yeah and i i uh i think it just delivers an entire package of showing you what film can do in so many different ways but also being somewhat simplistic and linear for somebody who's never seen a film before you don't want to inundate somebody with like pulp fiction or some crazy high tech uh moving all over the uh, like a real high concept or something just a nice fairy tale that's almost looks like a play so you're not confusing them or wowing them too much you're easing them into the medium with black and white like maybe they'd seen a photograph before or something, and then all of a sudden it opens up into color. It's got song, it's got dance, it's got a nice story that the whole family can enjoy, and uh, with a nice moral too. And I just think it's this perfect package, like a perfect storm, haha, uh, <laughs> for for someone who's never seen a movie before. Does that all make sense? It makes complete sense, and um, you know, if, if people were to go back and listen to the Dead Don't Die episode where your old co-host, Kurt Halfyard, uh, came and answered the same question, he actually gave the same answer. So as I move forward, I think I'm going to have to put that answer into the penalty box. It is the perfect answer. If I, if I was grading either one of you guys, I'd have to give you 100%. It makes something really complex look really simple. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's it's kind of like um, there's the old saying about how you see a duck on the water and it looks all calm and serene, but underneath the surface, its feet are paddling like hell. That's that's kind of the Wizard of Oz. Is is for where it is in movie history. Like 1939, the the art form was still very much in it, not quite its infancy, but it, it like in its in its adolescence, I'd say. And sure. to do a lot of what it does. And make it look so simple and so effortless and so fun um, is it actually takes like quite a great deal of of work. I mean, it's no small 
it, it's I, I guess it's no small surprise that this movie went through two or three directors to actually get the finished product done. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's I think that's a great analogy with the duck and um, the com- the complexity that's there, even though it's not as apparent to the viewer, maybe. Yeah. Also, it, I I'm think watching that, I, Dead Don't Die tonight, so. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Um, it's, um, yeah, it, it's, I think the funny thing is, I would wager it's also, like, when I ask people, what's the first movie you saw, I always emphasize in a theater, because I also do believe that a lot of people, when they gain memory of film, of, like, watching film at home, that is one of the first ones that most parents will put on for their kids, which is a pretty cool sign that a movie that's now, what, 85 years old um, is still a go-to for, for a lot of parents when they're trying to just introduce their kids to, to fairy tales and, and, you know, cinema. Also, I don't know if it's still the case. I don't really watch TV anymore, but when I was a kid, when we were kids, it was on every, like, once a year on, yeah. you know, your local station – and it was it became kind of a tradition. Yeah, oh, yeah. I I, I, mi- I do miss it. that. I, I do I do miss because yeah, it was a it was a thing. Like they'd say, okay, you know, it's that time of year again. The Wizard of Oz is going to be on this Thursday on CBS. Yep. I remember actually my first experience with it was a recorded version off of TV, like with the commercials still on the tape. Mm-hmm. You know, so so yeah, I, I do. I miss that kind of thing or you know you that that's, it was that same sort of thing with like it's a wonderful life you would have it on i mean when we were kids it was on a million times and then for a while it was only on like once yeah um but yeah it, it, it would be that kind of event movie that like yeah you know cbs tonight is showing gone with the wind so let's let's just stay in and watch that now now you can find it all whenever you want exactly that whole thing is gone yeah yeah. So no, that that is a good answer, and it's such a good answer that going forward, I'm going to have to take it off the board. So way to go, you ruined it for everybody else. Yes. What movie best embodies your personality? Yeah, this is a weird one because I wasn't even really sure how to interpret the question exactly. But Entirely I know entirely up to you. Yeah, I know how you go with just this is however you want to interpret the question. It's up to you. So, um, I looked and thought about it and looked at main characters maybe. Or, or, or the mood a film maybe sets. What is that? What does it mean to me? Is it just something I really like? But I thought about it, and um, I actually ended up on Olivier Assayas' "Clouds of Sils Maria," um, which, if any listeners haven't out there haven't seen it, it's Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. Juliette Binoche plays kind of an aging, big, big movie star. Uh, grappling with transitioning from like little independent artsy uh, Oscar bait films, if you will, into some big epic Michael Bay space adventure or something. And Kristen Stewart is her assistant, basically, but it's also her confident confidant and advisor. Um, And it's just mostly the two of them spending a weekend uh, at a secluded cabin or cottage kind of going through lines talking about what it mean what art is what it means to be an actress what it means to be in the movies um is this picture worthy blah 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 it's basically like what we discuss in movies uh movie podcasts all the time up on screen but it's got a 
just a gorgeous feel to it. The tone and the pacing is just right. Um, and I, I feel that the calmness of it, yet the subject matter and the passion with which these two, and later on in the movie, three or four characters uh discuss what their what their endeavors are and what their hopes and dreams and just general critique of the world is just totally fits who I am and I also love that movie like I think it was number 1 on my personal list that year that it came out so yes clouds of sils maria is how I interpreted that question so that is a fascinating answer on several levels. Um, first of all, oddly enough, that was actually my favorite year, my favorite movie of that year too. Um, might be, might be in like uh, now that that we're getting to like the end of the decade. That that's one that that's remained for me, and that would probably be somewhere in the top five of the decade too. Yes, which I know people would probably think that's a really pretentious answer, but I don't care. I love that movie so much. Um, number one, number two. Um, you actually touch on something really interesting because uh, the whole nature of just sitting around in like kind of quiet spaces, sometimes really pretty spaces, sometimes just, you know, like public transportation type spaces. It actually reminds me very much of when I came to Minnesota and was hanging out with you for a weekend because that, that first of all, that was most of what we did. You know, we yeah. like we, we went to like a museum and we went to a ball game. And we went to like a block party, but there was a lot of in between of like going to like this sake bar or going to like this park or going to this cafe or whatever and just shooting the shit about whatever the heck. And at one point, I do remember you saying like, "I feel like I'm wasting your time." Like I feel like you know if if we're spending so much time going from A to B that you're not actually doing anything. And I turned to you, and I'm like, "This is making me perfectly happy of just sitting like going from A to B." shooting the shit uh is, is is suiting suiting me quite nicely so that you know that don't get me wrong as, as wonderful as i do think minneapolis is it is nothing like the spaces that the women of this movie get to wander through and shoot the shit right um totally. so so that's that's where that's where your clouds don't quite reach Sils maria but um but yeah no that that is a really great answer in terms of the conversations and the um the 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 attention to what's happening in terms of pop culture because they spend a lot of time in that movie talking about what's going on with chloe grace moret's character yes and what's going on with this director and what's going on with this person who they cared about who has passed away it's and 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 they get into some really really um like personal conversations that's that's a really good answer thank you i i thought so (laughs) Yeah, no, well done. Uh, gold star for Andrew James. Uh, moving on, what is a movie that you hated at first but eventually came to enjoy? Uh, another tough one because I I tend to stick with... You're an unforgiving bastard? Yeah, sometimes, like, I, if I hate a movie, I'm always probably going to hate it. Maybe I'll warm up to it a little bit or something. Likewise, if I really like a movie, maybe it doesn't age as well later on, but I'll still... I'll still enjoy it, whatever. So I had a little bit of a tough time with this one. Um, and I, I guess the answer is, and I, and again, I didn't hate this movie when it came out, but I remember walking out of the theater going, I don't get it. I didn't, it didn't really, I just didn't like it that much. And that was American Psycho. Um, hmm. But now I love American Psycho. I think it's funny. I think it's exciting. Um, it's, it's weird. Um, it still doesn't make a hundred percent sense to me, but I, 
I mean, I, I really like it. Uh, the fact that it's set in the 80s, which isn't totally apparent, I think, on that first viewing. We walked out of there and somebody said, "What was this supposed to be like a period piece? And I thought back and I was like, oh, yeah, totally. They had the big phone. Like, it, it's not 80s like people make an 80s movie now. It's not all bombastic and flamboyantly 80s. It's just very subtle. Um, yeah, and I just... Didn't get it and wasn't that interested in the weird dialogue. I thought I was going to see sort of maybe like a murder mystery or a horror film, and it's not really either of those. Um, but over time, I love American Psycho. It's funny that you pick that movie because that's a movie. Um, I think I've said this a few times on the show over the years. That's a movie I had no interest in it when it first arrived. Um, somebody sat me down and watched it during like a kind of a have everybody over and I'm going to, I'm going to just pick, pick a movie and show it all to you guys. So just trust me and run with it kind of night. Um, and so I watched it when I kind of had nowhere to go. And I, I really did had to admit it took something crummy. We're actually going to talk about something similar in a second. Yep. It took something that I thought was really crummy and flipped it into something that I thought was actually much better than, than its source had any reason to be. So that's, I totally understand why you would, not have liked it or not have enjoyed it at first and come around to it over time. I mean, Christian Bale, obviously he'd been around. He's been an actor since yeah. he was a kid. But I think I think that's the first movie I was really introduced to Christian Bale as well. Like, I, Jared it was Leto, I knew. break out as a grown-up, you know? Because I remember, yeah. oddly, oddly enough, I remember that part was... Um, there was a part that a bunch of people were going to do. Like Leo DiCaprio was going to play that part at one point. Matt Damon was going to play that part at one point. And it ended up going to Christian Bale. And and yeah, that was kind of his breakout as a grown-up actor. Yes, it totally yeah. was. Yeah, no, that's that's another good... You're on fire, man. Jeez, man. For, for somebody who had to dust off his microphone, you're sure bringing good <laughs> answers today. All right, in a similar vein, uh, what is a remake or adaptation that you think is better than its original? Well... Naturally, I have to go to Stephen King for this. And uh, I'm going with his, the title of his book or short story was called The Body. Mm. Um, the movie is called Stand By Me. A lot, of, a lot of Stephen King's short stories became like feature length films. There's another obvious answer uh, that I decided not to go with for this question. Um, but... But yeah, Stand By Me, it just takes this idea of these young boys searching for a, you know, going to see a dead body and just opens up the, just opens everything up so much more and lets it breathe. And you're able to dive into all of the problems that these adolescent kids have. And they're all different. They all come from the same small town, but they all have different problems. Um, and they just lean on each other throughout this journey and it's funny and it's sad and it's scary it's exciting and it also as a as a male um you know who lived in a little suburb growing up with these same friends uh you know i had the fat kid friend and the the smart friend and the kind of maybe not not such a good seed friend and maybe i'm the average guy in there i like i kind of identified with all of these guys and the, the book is fine. It's just that it, the movie takes it and notches it way, way up. It, I don't remember even who directed Stand By Me. It's somebody pretty big, I think. It's uh, Rob Reiner. Yeah. Okay, there you go. The, yeah, the, the movie just opens up with all this back 
background stuff, like all these flashbacks. They actually show you the story that Gordy is telling around the fire with fat lardass and the puking. And I, it's just so much fun, especially as a kid, I think, uh, watching this movie. And yeah, it's just way better than the short story. I think what you're touching on um, is is something interesting in the way that so, so first of all um, to to surprise a lot of people I've actually never read uh, that Stephen King collection that has the body in it I believe isn't is that the same collection that's also got Shawshank Redemption and App Pupil is that is that different seasons I think yeah I confuse them all there's you know four he has three Midnight or, four or whatever and then the Bachman books yeah it's not the Bachman I've, books I think it is different seasons yeah. I've, I've, so oddly enough, I've actually never read the original, although now that I remember, I, I probably will make a point of that in, in the next little while. So watch your Instagram, people. You'll probably see a picture of <laughs> that book with a cup of coffee next to it. Um, but I think one of the things you're touching on that's, that's really good is it's much easier to take something small and expand upon it than it is to take something so big and try to transpose it. Um, I'm noticing that with, um, like, I'm noticing that right now with uh, with Watchmen on HBO is mm-hmm. that I always thought, like, as much as I enjoy that movie that was made ten years ago, ten years ago now, Jesus, wow. um, I think that something like that is better served to be told over ten hours than it is to try and shoehorn it into two. If you're going to try and shoehorn something into two. It needs to be something short. It needs to be like a play or a novella or so, or or like a single issue of a comic book. You know, like it, you can always expand upon an idea. It's really hard to tap a lot of bases and and get in and out. Stephen King has these big, thick, epic books that are really great, like Needful Things. And when you try to cut that down into a two-hour movie, it is a giant piece of turd. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes, it is. Now, last for now, if you could bring any dead artist, a director, a writer, a cinematographer, what have you, back to life, who would it be and why would you do it? Can you imagine if we had 20 more years of Stanley Kubrick? Oh, like, my God. I know it would only be four or five movies because he only released it, but those four or five movies would all be masterpieces. Yeah. I, yeah. I, this seems like the most obvious answer to me because i went through and thought of a bunch of names and stuff and but i went at the end of the day i really miss i really feel bad that eyes wide shut is the last thing we got from him in 1999 you know what's funny i remember um i i think either i read something or i went to a lecture or something like that that was talking about the career of kubrick and the funny thing about kubrick when you get to about uh, I think it's when you when you get to around the point of The Shining, um, or maybe maybe even before The Shining, maybe once you get to even Barry Lyndon, um, is you go through this weird stretch where the common reaction and the common critical reaction was the most movie, the, the newest movie he made was rubbish, and he lost it. And then the next one would come out, and it's like, nope, actually, that last one wasn't so bad. This one was terrible. And every time a new one came out, it just gave a little bit more perspective to that one that came before to the point where even we're at the point now where a lot of people did not like Eyes Wide Shut at the time, but now everybody loves it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an so, interesting. Totally. I can see yeah, that. So, yeah. So, you know, people hated The Shining. People hated 
full metal jacket and, and you know and and it just it just took a little bit a lot more time to settle took like took some thought and that's the thing i would have loved to see is you know that whatever he would give us would be not at all what we expected maybe not what we thought we wanted at the time but over those over those you know if we got 20 more years if we got like let's say even four more movies yeah they would become something that we actually didn't realize we needed yeah i think that's that's totally it, with each next project you're saying you would look back at the last yeah. one and go yeah yeah yep. absolutely i mean like even you know um AI is mostly his movie. Like, like, like Spielberg did it, and Spielberg worked off his notes and everything like that. But when you when you like look around, like um, gallery expositions and books and that kind of thing, they attribute a lot of what's in AI to um, to Kubrick. We have we have sort of Kubrick clones, I think, with some, you know, like Jonathan Glazer, Yargos Lanthimos, and these guys. But still. I, That's I would not love the same, another yeah. four. No, I'd, I'd, I'd love just just like even just one more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I fully, I, I fully, uh, I can fully song. get on board with the animation. More song. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, that's uh, that's more about Andrew James. We're going to move on to the new slang, and I know that on this show that usually the new slang tries to stay spoiler free, but um, in this movie, there's just no damn way. So um, we, I think, would both come, come down on the side of saying that you should see this movie and. Um, come on back and talk to us afterwards because there's a lot to talk about in this movie uh we're gonna talk about parasite right after this come on back it's a new slang on episode 232 Parasite is directed by Bong Joon-ho. It's written by Jin Won Han and Bong Joon-ho. It stars Kang Ho-sung, Yo Jong-jo, Sodan Park, Wook Sik-choi, and several other people who I do not know. Mr. Kim and his family of four live in a derelict basement apartment in Korea. They make do off of stolen Wi-Fi and make a meager living doing menial jobs like folding up pizza boxes. One day a family friend comes by to say goodbye before leaving to study abroad and suggests that Kiwoo, that's the son in the family, take over his job tutoring English for the child of a wealthy family. The boy doesn't have the proper credentials, but his friend says to worry not. In this life, it's not about what you know so much as about who you know and about what you can bluff. The lad goes to work for Mr. Park in a splendid modern house. It's not long after that that Kiwoo's sister is applying to be an art teacher for the Park's son, and Kiwoo's father is applying to drive them around. And before it's all said and done, even Kiwoo's mother is applying for a job. So now the whole family works for the Parks, and everyone can live happily ever after, right? Wrong. It's right around this moment that life in the Park home gets truly surreal, and this film becomes truly unforgettable. Mr. Kim notably tells his son in this film that sometimes in life, the very best plans are no plans at all. That way, he says, your ideas and wants cannot fail. So pop quiz, hotshot. The best plan is no plan at all. What in the world does that mean to you in accordance to this movie? Uh, In accordance to this, well, I really liked that sentiment a lot. Um, it really <laughs> struck a chord with me because I am a very you much, nihilist. 
I, I'm, a, I'm a total exhausting. fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. I take things as they come at me. I very rarely, of course, some things you need to plan out. I'm going on vacation. I'm going to stay here. Whatever. But in in a in a sense of life, yeah, I just kind of take things as they come at me. I see opportunity. I'll go after it. Other um, if a problem shows up, I'll tackle it. I don't plan anything really it's just it is what it is so when he said that i know it's it's kind of coming off as a like kind of a negative thing i i've I've also heard something similar the adage is like if you don't even try then you can't fail which is (laughs) i think that's a homer simpsonism yeah it, it totally is and there's some like some amount of wisdom buried in there at some way but it Overall, that's that's a horrible way to go through life. And I think the sentiment of not planning for anything is also kind of it's kind of naive and childish and lazy. But there's a a little bit of wisdom in there, too. Um, So I noticed throughout the movie that he mentions plans a lot before Mm -hmm. he 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 straight up says uh, that quote that you just said, which kind of comes towards the end of the movie, but throughout the film, three or four, maybe five times, he says, so you have a plan then? What's your plan? What's your plan? They talk about plans all the time. Um, and sort of to to verify what he says, all of these plans that they lay out constantly go awry and not the way they want them to, not the way they foresaw them. So... I really thought that was a nice foundation for the rest of the movie. You know, once he says that, you look back at everything and go, "Uh uh-huh, he's kind of right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, not to jump too far ahead of ourselves, but this movie is a movie that very much has class on its mind. It's it's kind of it's been a theme this year, I think, with, with several movies that are really taking a long, hard look at class. And the Kim family. They live in a, it's not even a, to say a basement apartment would be putting it grandiose. They live in, you know, a glorified like boiler room. Yeah. Basically. And the Park family, they have rooms upon rooms upon rooms. They have far more space than they could ever possibly need. And that dichotomy is front and center. And so what I got to thinking about is true plans, true capital P plans are really something that one is afforded um to to and, and it comes up in the course of this movie like at, at a certain point something happens which we'll talk about in a bit something happens to the kim family that throws everything they're doing for a really really wicked loop and and this is while like while they're like neck deep in a scheme that i think is part of what he is saying when the best plan is no plan at all is he is trying to say your best plan is to survive from day to day and to just get a little bit more you know a little bit more comfortable than you were yesterday and whether that comes from getting a new hustle or stealing a different type of wi-fi or or finding your way from a basement apartment to a sub basement apartment or whatever i think that's what he's what he's trying to say is plans the way that we think about them in terms of school and fellowships and savings and and that kind of thing that's really a luxury of a certain class of people and not everybody is that class of people so if you are if you wake up 
and you look around and you realize I am not in the class I thought I would be, then your best plan is just to, you know, make it to tomorrow. Yeah. Fascinating read on it. I, I kind of agree, especially because, yeah, the movie's clearly about class warfare and the obvious I don't know, fight or whatever the 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 struggle is between the rich family and the poor family. But at the same time, like you said, they're just out there to survive and they're willing to throw other poor people under the bus to get what they want as well. So there's like this struggle or class warfare amongst the lower class. It's not just eat the rich. Although that's no, in there no, too. it's not. Yeah, and that, and I think that's that's actually what makes this movie so good. Because if it was just poor people against rich people, it would it would get it would get nasty really quickly. And actually, that's the funny thing about this movie is for as for as often as it is unpleasant, it never gets nasty. Well, I mean, it gets vicious, almost lighthearted. Yeah, even in its sort of viciousness, it's still yeah. I, I don't know. I had there were some parts in the middle where I, I was turning on characters back and forth, both the yeah. rich people and the poor people like the, the, the Kim family that there's a scene where they I'm really kind of on their side and they're fun, even though they're kind of doing bad things. They're they're easy to latch on to. They're easy to like in the context of this movie. Um, and you're kind of rooting for them and you want to see where it goes and you're admiring their cleverness but there's a scene where they all kind of just get drunk and sit around and are lazy and i found them really gross in that scene i started to strongly dislike them in that scene it's funny because i think that's the scene where they you know the the whole time they have been hustling their ass off to make everything work like they're putting on the right appearance and they're saying the right thing and they're 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 acting like they belong where they are like to to a man every time one of them goes in for the job they they always like no sweat boss i can totally do that i can totally drive your car i can totally prepare whatever food it is whatever cookie food it is you want me to prepare and you know that's that's the crazy thing is up until that point you are totally on their side of of just trying to not even really con this family, but just get a little from this family in an unsuspecting way. And then, you know, when they, if they were having that party back in their place or back somewhere else, I don't think it would really affect us as much as it is. But to see them putting their feet up on the table and making a mess of the joint and everything like that, it's just like, it's anxiety inducing. It's it's kind of gross. It, it it kind of takes you back a few pegs from being on their side, mm-hmm. um, which is why I think that's the it's it's great that that's the moment where things really get, go haywire. <clears throat> right, that is the lead up to everything going nuts, and that's also kind of one of my little nitpicks about this movie is, like you said, they work their ass off. They're also very they're clearly skilled at different things they're clearly not stupid they're very clever they're very intelligent why are they they're not lazy so why i don't understand why they're living in squalor in the first place i understand there's tons of different circumstances that can lead to things but it didn't feel believable to me once i realized how capable and ingenuitive these people are um 
that they're just living in squalor. I, but yeah, it's a nitpick, but it, it kind of bothered me in hindsight. Well, I think the only thing that might underline that is it's it's possible that even though they're you know they're they're lower class and and they're clearly hardworking, is that they they there's something inside of them that doesn't really want to cross a line. And that's the thing. Like off the top of this movie, Kiwu, he really has to be talked into lying to Mr. to, to the Park family. Like, you know, his his buddy is like, listen. You can do this. Just because you don't have the certification to do this doesn't mean that you can't do this. So if you just go in there and act like you can, give them some forged documents, you'll you'll probably land it, especially if I vouch for you. And and that's the crazy thing is Mrs. Park, like when he goes to like take out his his diploma that his sister has like carefully forged, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, no, I don't care. I don't I don't want to see that. That that means nothing to me. And and it's it's that crazy thing that they they feel like. You know, how many times have you met somebody who's like, I don't feel like I can go out for that job. They're asking for all kinds of qualifications that I don't have. And you tell them, listen, you know, you can totally do that. Just bluff it. Just go out there. Just put yourself out there and see what happens. And and that's the thing is they don't want to do that. They, they, they see all of these must have a car restrictions on applying for a job and they don't want to apply for that job. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things my dad told me going out. He said, it's not your job. It's the other person's job. It's the in, it's the person doing the interview to determine um, whether you have the skills or not. It's, it's, it's your job just to put forth what you have, and it's their job to, like, wipe you off the slate or take you on. There's no harm in applying for everything. It's their job yeah. to determine if you're qualified or not, not yours. Or whether so, they like you. Like yeah. that that's the thing too. Sometimes it's just a matter of and do they think that they're gonna be able to stand sitting in the back seat while they while you drive their car. Right. And 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 having confidence. There's a great oh, yeah. YouTube video out right now where people um all they need is a ladder and confidence and they can get into anything. They were getting into bars. They were getting into big, like expensive parties and movies because they had a ladder. And they walked in with confidence like they belong there. And that's what that's these amazing. guys totally do. Yeah. Um, I mean, the cool thing I like about this movie is the actual hustle. The, the odd thing is the actual, like kind of what we're talking about here, the actual hustle is not really a huge con, but the hustle is knowing, like getting that one person who's on the inside who can say, oh, I know a guy, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Park family, they're kind of their failing in this movie is they are so consumed by saying um, I won't hire somebody who somebody else does not know like I'm not going to just open up applications to this job somebody needs to come recommended and that's how each family dominoes their way into working for the Park family is one gets in and then they say oh you need an art teacher well I know somebody oh you need a driver well I know somebody and it's it kind of makes you wonder if like the upper class are actually paying any attention to their help no. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. They, like you said, they. Oh, you rec- You've done a good job for the last week. You've recommended this guy. It's great. But at the end of the day, I, I didn't feel like the rich family, the Park family, cared that much about the Kim family in terms of like who they are and. Um, oh no! Personal problems no. or struggles. It's just no. They don't give a crap. No, they totally don't. So. Um, yeah, I, 
I love it took a little while for me to realize what was going on but once I did I was like oh this is a heist movie yeah. in a kind of weird one at a time roundabout way it's a heist movie um they're heisting their way in they're stealing jobs essentially yeah. um I found it fascinating the way that it slowly insinuated itself into becoming a heist movie. Yeah, I mean, the Park family, they've got all of these little quirks and and um, particularities about how they want their house run and, like, how he wants his car driven. And, you know, Mr. Park even says, he goes, really, I want a driver who will never cross the line. And Mr. Kim, all um, you know, um, he always kind of walks up to the line, but he never kind of crosses it. And even when he's giving him like that audition, you see that he's holding a cup of coffee in the back of the car. And he's like kind of watching to make sure that Mr. Kim never drives that car in a way that makes him spill a full porcelain cup of coffee with no lid. So it's like they've got all of these parameters in place and what they want, but they're never paying really close attention to who's actually doing the job so much as it just keeps them comfortable that totally and that's they don't care and you know they don't care because of the way they just just throw people uh out the door like toilet paper like this woman has a medical condition well instead of regardless of the fact that she's worked with us for four years she's lived in the house for 20 years yep gone we'll just fire her like you're not yeah, gonna help yeah. her out. She at this point she should be almost part of the family, but no, no, we'll just fire her. The driver, like you don't even ask him any questions or anything. We found this pair of panties. You're gone. Like, <laughs> really? Was, yeah. I mean that was an incredible play too. Like the the family, the, the the Kim family, the the daughter figures out a way that she can weasel out of the way the driver, and she does it by like leaving her knickers in the back of the of the car so mr park finds them and automatically assumes like the worst yeah you know this this guy who's been driving for him for i don't know how long gets no benefit of the doubt and yet this person who's just come in there is like oh by the way i know a driver like that's that's the kind of thing i love about this movie is every setup that it puts into play is is kind of genius totally and another thing that sort of works out well for this movie is there's a lot of little I don't I don't know if I'd call them red herrings but there's moments where you think they're going to get caught for example with the panties uh you know he says you know what's really weird when you have sex in the back of a car maybe you would forget like an earring or something who forgets their underwear so like for a while I thought oh he's gonna sort of investigate here and, but no, that goes away. And then there's the kid who recognizes the fact that they all smell the same. Yeah. Like, these guys are all from the same house. Um, and you're like, oh, this is going to be a thing. And then that's kind of tossed off to the side. So I like there's these little moments where you think they're about to get caught or discovered. And then they never really are. Yeah. And, it, and I mean, it's it's especially interesting because Park talks about how Mr. Kim has that smell so it's like how are you not paying that much attention to the fact that mr kim smells like that and so does everybody else because they're living all in the same moldy basement like yeah, yeah kim's a little older so he's probably got his own buddy thing going on too but i bet you five bucks if you were a little bit closer to your maid or to your daughter's english teacher or your son's art teacher you might notice something a little bit closer as well yeah it was yeah. it was kind of weird how aloof they are 
Yeah. Was there any one of these characters that stood out for you? Maybe the maybe the father, Mr. Mr. K- not Mr. Park, but Mr. Mr. Kim. Kim. Um, maybe stood out a little bit more just because he seemed to have maybe a little bit more reservations about certain things. He had a little bit more life experience and ideas about things. He also was the one, when it comes to the smell, he was the one targeted when there was some, you know, when they're hiding under the table and the park, the the husband and wife are sort of bad-mouthing these people, he's the one that was the real target or the brunt of that about how he smells and and how he's kind of gross and it wafts to the bed. So maybe he stood out a little bit more as the quote-unquote main character. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't hurt that he's one of the guys who we've seen in other through things. the years in movies yes. like, yeah, like Thirst and Snowpiercer and, and um, you know, the host and those kinds of movies. He's He's got... Um, He's got kind of more of a sympathetic face. Like he's a little bit older. Um, he's not quite as in in he's he's actually not even all that old. He's he's fifty two. Um, he's a little he's a little heavy. He's he's got these he's got eyes that do a lot of the heavy lifting for him. Whether it's him, you know, looking through the window at Mr. Park when he first gets there for the job, like, you know, like, should I sit down or should I come into you? Or when they're talking at the party and he's wearing that that stupid, like, Indian headdress and he's listening to, to what his boss wants to do. He's really got this, this face that he wears a lot of emotion on from moment to moment when he's trying to act as something else. Yeah, I, I, you know? I agree. His... He's just got one of those faces and and you're right about the eyes and he, how they express so much like he can be so sad and taken aback but he can be really happy too and it's just super expressive. Yeah. And I mean it's it's crazy because there's times where he just looks like a down and out schlub when they're like trying to figure out how to pick up new Wi-Fi in their basement. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I mean, you you know, kind of what goes to show of like how this whole con works you put him in a suit and you put him in a Benz and he looks like he's supposed to be there totally yeah and that's, I, maybe that's, that's why he stands thing. out yeah uh, the only other one that would stand out for me and we, we haven't gotten there yet is the older housekeeper the one that gets fired and comes back later she, yeah she's she kind of nuts yeah. she she's it's it's crazy because on the one hand she looks like this doting house marm of a woman who always knows you know like how to get the stains out of the sheets and and you know how the son likes his oatmeal and how to make whatever it is ramdan in eight minutes that like those kinds of things and yet in the second half of this movie when things go nuts she really gets crazy like she she really gets very desperate and crazy very very quickly like so it's it's kind of it's a testament of her to how she's able to like act very composed and very in control of this, you know, really, really high end house. But when you take that away from her, she'll get desperate real quick. Mm -hmm. Especially when she's got the goods on you. Oh yeah. Once she realizes what's going on. I mean, I was still on her side the whole time. She should have never been fired. She should have, you know, that was really unfair and they did it in a really mean way. Um, and when anyway, she comes though. back, she's doing it for the good of someone. She's like, I just want to take care of this. Maybe we can work something out. Um, and then once she realizes what's going on, she's like, this is my way back in. 
yeah um, but then yeah. yeah she does go crazy that whole north korea speech that she gives <laughs> and yeah that was pretty great okay so just in case you happen to have come this far and are dodging spoilers uh this is your last chance to turn back because everything we've been talking about so far is really not even the most spoilerific part of this movie so this is your last chance to turn back this movie the cool thing about this movie is so it's called parasite and it begins to play itself out and you think oh okay so this family are the parasite this family are the leeches that are going to grab on to something that is more nourishing and that's how they're going to survive and then you realize oh no there's this other parasite who has already been there the entire turn of this movie like we said like that woman coming in and saying i just got this one thing i need to take care of this one thing just please let me in and i'll be out of your hair i don't know what the shit i expected her to be going to do but as sure as hell wasn't hey there's a dude living in the basement i know yeah when she goes down and we'll talk about cinematography and stuff later but when she goes down those stairs and we don't the camera doesn't follow her it stays upstairs with the family looking at their watch going she's been down there for a while <laughs> yeah and i'm thinking okay i've seen bong joon ho movies before so there it could literally be anything yeah i didn't know if there was gonna be a demon down there an octopus uh nothing it could it could i was so on the edge of my seat to find out what was down there um and i thought it could go totally fantastical or it could sort of just be what it ended up being and i that was one of the things i really liked about the movie it just grabs you and holds on even more every step so yeah that when she goes down there and it turns out to be that um once again it just says okay this is happening now what <laughs> the the so to put a point on it like we find out that like her husband has been living in this storm cellar the, like this panic room that this family doesn't even know is there like there is if you want the indictment of how high class this family is they don't even know the lay of their entire house they bought it not knowing this part of it existed and have never gone there, never asked about it, never been had any clue that it's there. I don't know about you, man, but like there are if there was like a court like I am using every single nook of my apartment. There is not a single piece of storage space that I am not using for something. Yes. To have a whole cellar of your house that you don't even know is there that is big enough and comfortable enough for somebody to live that is like that's damning yeah it's kind of mind-blowing but the way it's shot and filmed kind of makes sense like it's oh, really it makes complete hidden. sense yeah. yeah like how they get there how deep underground it is how you know like where it leads and that kind of thing I, you know, like you look at the Park family and they're not the kind of people who do maintenance on their house. They, they do like no actual hands on work. So it's completely plausible that yep. they would have no idea like how to change a circuit, you know, in their circuit breaker, let alone that this entire subsection of their house exists. And I like how they explain that the housekeeper knows it's there because she was there with the previous family and the previous family knew about it, but they... They, I guess they were like ashamed of it or something, uh, and they so they didn't want to tell 
the parks when they moved in. So that's how she knew about it, but they didn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that comes right back to the park family's weakness of, well, you vouch for this person. I'm uh, sure. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, you're selling us your house and you think the housekeeper is worth keeping on. Yeah. We'll take your housekeeper too, but just add her into the sale. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's bananas really. And yet at the same time, it works totally for this movie. Totally. It does. Yeah. Um, And that is where this movie starts to go haywire is this entire other entity in 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 the way of this guy this this jun say dude who happens to who's been living in the basement for god knows how long just like existing on whatever the housekeeper brings down to him is is and that the family finds out that he knows that the family's not supposed to be there it's on the one hand it's insane and on the other hand this movie handles it so deftly that you just you have to just like lean back and be impressed yeah er everything is like you said, insane, but it's also strangely plausible. Like it's yeah. all grounded somehow in a reality that you totally buy. Um, even some of the reactions later on, and the especially, I mean, it's a Bong Joon Ho movie, so stuff like this, it gets crazy all the time and things. But something about this one, I, I just believed. I bought every single thing pretty much that happens. Well. Well, because I think what makes this movie work so well and what makes a lot of his movies work so well is there's a fluidity to the narrative. Kind of like what I was saying is, oh, these are the parasites. No, that's the parasite. Now we've got you know a fight between the parasites. You're moving from station to station so elegantly that you just get caught up and it's like, wait, how did we get here? Weren't they folding pizza boxes in their own basement like 45 minutes ago? And it's like, no, we did this and we did this and we did this and that's how we got here. It, it you know, it's no small surprise that this is the same guy who made an amazing action movie that was all set on a moving train because his stories and the way his approach to cinema is, is all about the fluidity of it to the point where like, I mean, in a lesser movie, the fight between the two families of we're going to out you well, we'll out you. And that would have been the end. That would have been like that conflict between them over who was going to be outed to the parks and how would have been the end of the story. And yet, meanwhile, there's a whole other crisis that follows in the way of this like rainstorm that one family is just able to like kind of sit in their comfy living room and and just ride out in style and to the other family it is it's you know armageddon <laughs> yeah uh, you know and yeah and we get to that in a in a very natural way very natural and maybe it it feels natural just because of the way the the last hour of this movie is one giant even if you don't realize it while you're watching it, in hindsight, it's all one giant suspenseful bomb clock ticking yeah. down. Um, yeah. Just hiding under the bed, hiding under the, the coffee table, sneaking around up and down, trying to get food down to those people, but they can't quite do it because the party guests and all of that stuff. It's all, I mean, to use the cliche, it's all edge of your seat stuff. Even yeah. if you don't even now, realize and Now it I have time. to get out and now I have to get back to my apartment and oh shit, my apartment's flooded. But now my boss is calling me to come back in for this party that they just want to throw. Okay, I smell like sewage. How am I going to do that? You know, like, it's incredible. It is. It's really incredible that it's not just a complete mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, like, 
I, I pity the poor fool that tries to remake this movie because you know somebody will. Oh, yeah. There'll be an English language version of it at some point. Yeah. So then my next note says, and then there's a party. <laughs> <laughs> Which at first, I this it was one of my nitpicks. I didn't totally believe sort of his reaction, but in the last 24 hours I've been thinking about it, it actually it's totally believable and viable and Mr. Kim's reaction, what he does. I've had enough of this. I'm just going to take care of business after all of the things that it's been said about him. That's been done to him. The, the last 24 hours for him have been insane. And the final straw is again, total spoilers when his daughter is laying there dying and Mr. Park could not possibly care less. All he's interested in is getting the car keys. Like that that whole scene, he, Mr. Kim finally snaps and lets him have it. Of course, that also sets up the final, final ending. But the party, there's so much. Oh, the, the Indian stuff. There's so much buildup there that it finally makes his final action, the murder, believable. It's like this party that this family just throws together. That's that's the crazy thing. Like the mother wakes up one morning and she's like, I want to have a nice little party for our son. <laughs> Not too big. Just a few of the families, you know, they're, they're going to come and they're going to eat. And she just throws together this thing that I don't know about you, but that would take me like at least a week to pull off. Oh, yeah. The opera you know, singer and the cellist and this gorgeous yeah. cake. And, and we're gonna that, use yeah. the we're gonna use the teepee and we'll arrange the tables around it. We've got all the tables downstairs. Just go get the tables. You know, I'm like, are you kidding me? To the point where so it's just this really it's like deceptively opulent party. It's it's not really lavish in the grand scheme of things, but the fact that they were just able to pull that out of their ass is what makes it so you know, just just kind of grossly sublime, and into the middle of that walks this hermit, right? Who just is who just sets everything in motion, and one family of parasites starts taking on the other family of parasites, and it all just basically, like you said, it's a bomb, and the bomb goes off in the middle of all of this, and it just goes and goes and goes, and there's stabbings, and there's tackling, and there's they're dressed up as Indians, and there's cellists running every which way, and you're just sitting there, just dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. Dumbfounded, you know? totally. Yeah, it, I don't know about you, but at this point, it takes a lot in a movie to shock me. When that shit just started going real, I was just pinned to my seat. Absolutely, and that's one of the things I really like about this movie is I walked out, and I'm if it's a movie that I'm not succinctly able to explain, um, or I can't really relate it to any other movie. Like it's it's a own thing that I I don't think I've seen anything quite like this before. That's the hallmark of a, a really great movie. Yeah, and and this is one of those. So, um, but yeah, I I didn't expect anything. And when that bomb goes off, the proverbial bomb, it's just a whirlwind around your head, and you got to wrap everything that you've seen for the last hour and a half up to this moment and put it all together and go, wow, this was crafted impeccably. Like parent, like on IMDb, it's first listed as a comedy. And I mean, there's funny shit in it, but it's not a comedy. It's listed as a thriller, which sort of, but compared to some of his other movies, it's not really a thriller. Mm-hmm. It, like you say, it's really hard to square yourself to what you just saw. Yeah. It's not 
a horror movie. It's not no. a drama, really. I mean, but I guess it, that would but yet be it's, it is violent and it is dramatic. Yeah, and it is funny. It's all of those. So that's what I'm saying. I can't pinpoint this thing into any. I can't put it into any hole. Um, and that's what I loved about it. And then back to the party, though, they do take a moment and they go upstairs where the son is up there with his student um, talking about, do I fit in? Like there's this <laughs> little allegory on the side about if I just put on a suit and tie, does that make me one of the crew? Or is there something more to being uh, you know, rich and affluent and part of this group? Which kind of goes along with what you were saying about the driver. He's this schlubby looking guy. He stinks a little bit, but you put a suit and tie on him and boom, he looks like he belongs there. Um, I think that's kind of what the son was getting in, getting at when he was talking with the girlfriend upstairs, looking down yeah, at this party. And, and, what, and, and like kind of what this whole movie is about. It's like if you can, if, if somebody invites you into the club, that's really all it takes. If somebody vouches for you, it, it really like you don't even really have to come from means you can you like like you were saying like the whole thing about uh, a ladder and guts if yep. somebody hands you the ladder if you've got the guts you can you can get in anywhere you want so I mean he's asking because he's got the ladder and he's got the guts and he's just like he's basically saying really is this all there is to it mm-hmm. and you know he's asking a girl younger than him he's asking a teenager is this really all there is to it and everything we've seen so far is like pretty much, you know, you might have to shower a little bit more and, you know, like you're, you're going to have to be very careful because you're going to get found out. But if, if you're as, if you've come this far, if you're clever enough to come this far, same thing, I mean, same thing goes for the, the housekeeper and her husband. If you're clever enough to hide them under there and you were able to get, get away with it for a day, you can probably get away with it for a year. Yeah. Which it's they so na- they lament, and that night of getting drunk, they talk about wow, how naive uh, and unaware these people are that we can do this. Can you believe how how we've so easily duped them? But yeah. when when the son is upstairs with the girl and he asks her that question, her reaction is great. Her reaction is exactly what you just said, which was yeah, pretty much. But she doesn't say anything. She just kind of looks at him and smiles a little and nods her head and I yeah that's I guess that's about it yeah um, yeah it's 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 crazy like it's a really it's not it's not trying to be I mean the thing about being somebody who identifies as progressive and somebody who identifies as you know like on the left is there are some times where I think that people can be really really ham-fisted about this kind of thing and be really smarmy about how you know like be very unegalitarian about how egalitarian the world should be this movie actually treats it all with a very deft touch of pointing out the differences in class and how it how easy it is for one class to get into the other and it never gets preachy about any of it it's it's amazing to see it all unfold was there anything about this movie that actually didn't work for you because i mean we've been like lavishing this movie for half an hour uh i was just googling egalitarian first of all um <laughs> thank you okay uh, it's, my, it's my word of the day yes okay um is there well we got to get to the end like the very end i want to talk oh, yeah. about that is there yes. anything that didn't oh, yes. work for me um 
Well, like I said, just that one nitpick about the family. I'm a little surprised that they are where they are. The rainstorm felt a l- like the timing of that felt a little coincidental, but it, it's whatever. It's fine. Uh, no, not not really. Especially the more I think about it, I think the pieces fall into place pretty well. Was there something you were not liking? The begin. I mean, if if somebody who hadn't seen a Bong Joon Ho movie before were to see this, or or even you know, for all I know, somebody's listening to this show and they've never seen a movie, a Korean movie. Period. Um, that first forty five minutes can feel a little slow when everybody's getting into place and everybody's slipping on their suits of being domestic workers that first 45 minutes is very very patient yes um you know it's like i mean it gets paid off in the end because of just how balls to the wall everything gets in the final hour that's the thing once you get to that once that once that family gets into that house and they start acting like a bunch of slobs it's all downhill from there. Like it does not waste a second from that point on. From from the moment they're in that house, and and it's it's crazy because you think that's what's actually going to out them. You know, like you think that that the whole thing of the family coming home to find them that way, you think that that's really what's going to get them. Not the fact that there's a dude downstairs mm-hmm. that's going to cause this whole other conflict. But that first forty five minutes or so, it it almost might be too patient. It might be. Yeah, it would be tough to say. Although, yes, I kind of agree. You could shave off 10 minutes, a snip here and a snip there, and pull 10 minutes off, and the movie would probably work just as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's but, it's, uh, it's a feature of Bong Joon-ho movies. It's a feature of Korean movies. They're in no hurry to, to show their hand. Yeah, that's true. And maybe it wouldn't work. You know, it's tough to say. Maybe you need that slow build up to make the that final hour once the doorbell rings uh <laughs> it's it, you're off to the races and maybe yeah. you need that just what is is this movie gonna have a point really is this gonna yeah yeah it's it's not even long like it's it, it's longer than two hours it's like it's two it's two twelve so it's it's not like it's really flabby or anything like that but i bet you five bucks you could probably take those 12 minutes out of the first half of the movie and you'd still be left with something wonderful. I agree. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk about the the very ending? Let's do it. Because I really, really liked it. And this is one of those cases where this has happened to me before. I can't give specific examples, but there's an ending, a very happy, lovely ending. And the movie fades to black. And I go, Oh, that was such a nice ending. And then it, the screen lights up again and I go, oh, there's more. That would have been so perfect. But that last 10 seconds is actually better and puts a stamp on everything the movie's been saying the whole way through. So it's you, yeah, you know what it, I'm like, talking it, it, about. It's incredible. Like that 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 ending was just, you know, it goes back to what Mr. Kim was saying about plans and sometimes no plans at all are the best plans. And his son in this moment is saying, well, the plan is I just got to bust my ass so that I can, you know, so that I can do right by my family. And it's not even like none of this. It's it's crazy because none of this is his fault. 
Like, like it, it, the son in this moment is assuming responsibility for this chaos that was unleashed at this party. He's, he's basically assuming the death of his sister. He's assuming the, the disappearance of his father is all on him. And he's like, I just gotta, gotta bust my ass, gotta make a lot of money, gotta buy that house. And that's what I'm gonna do. And, 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 and we don't know how, we don't care how. That's the thing, the movie just shows him in a suit, a little bit older, buying that house. We don't show this house to everybody. And you're just like, well, I guess he did it. Like we, we the movie has, yeah. give, has built up enough trust with us at this point, just to like, yeah, I guess that happened. Good for you, kid. And, and gets this elegant little ending of that father walking out of the bunker into the, into the light. And, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy because on the one hand, you're right. We would totally accept that ending, that sweet fairy tale ending of this just bonkers story. And yet it's like, not yet. You know, like we get just a little 10 second one shot reminder of that's where I got to go, but I'm not there. I'm not there. And, yeah, he says something yeah. like, and that's the plan so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh I my just God, remembered that's incredible. at the risk of spoiling <laughs> an old movie, older movie anyway, that's kind of the ending of 25th Hour. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was trying. I was trying to come up with it. I was like, I know that there's a movie that does. And that. there's there's other ones too, but that one sticks in my. You know, he goes off on this. This is what we're gonna do. It's gonna be fine. And then they come back and go, but it's not really the reality here. Yeah. Um, no, it, it's it's an incredible ending. Yeah, I. It was one of those ones where I like my jaw dropped a little bit when it ended, and it was so like wholesome. And I'm like, oh, what a great, oh, sweet, and it's a beautiful image, and it hangs on that hug for a little while, and it fades to black, and my jaw was open just a little bit, going, wow, that was really good. <laughs> and then it comes back and gives you, and then my jaw dropped open a little bit more and went, wow, that was really great. Yeah, it ends yeah. on such a cynical, like just kind of a, oh, that's too bad, but. It, way to nail the ending just stick it perfectly love it. yeah oh man no this this movie's incredible um we end every review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep there's a lot in this movie that one could take away and keep but andrew james what would be your takeaway from bong joon ho's parasite well ryan it's been really cold and blustery and windy and wet around here recently so in 10 minutes when the mom cooks up that Rhonda ramen, mm -hmm. that's what I want. That, that looked so good watching her cook that up and put it she, in like 15 minutes. She throws that thing together and sets it in front of the, the family and says, eat up. That's it. I want that ramen. Looks delicious, doesn't it? It looks so good. Yeah. Oh man, like she got like the big chunks of meat in there too, and it looks like it's got like a like a soy barbecue sauce yeah, thing. I, I, those chunks I, of meat. Oh, it looks so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I gotta try that. Um, so actually, it's kind of my my souvenir is kind of like that. Actually, my souvenir is I want that kitchen. So I'm I'm no class warrior or anything like that. But the one thing I've always noticed in life and certainly in the movies is that people who have incredible kitchens never really use them. And I'm a cook. So I, I like just long for counter space and islands and, and metal <laughs> fixtures. So yeah. I, cause like I was, I was making chili last night and I had to keep 
clearing off the island every time I would cut something up just because I didn't really have a whole lot of room. So I want that kitchen that they have. And they've got like a whole pantry off the side of it. I, that's, if I, you know, it's an incredible house, but I, they can keep the rest of the house. I can live in little broom closet rooms as long as the kitchen is what that kitchen is in this movie. Two things. One, sure. I bet if you went back to previous episodes of the matinee cast, you've had that exact answer before. I, I well, that's like entirely true. That. Just because I have kitchen envy. <laughs> um, the other thing is, I'm glad you. I, I wanted to mention this with this whole cinematography and stuff. But in that kitchen, I love the black door, the black doorway that goes oh, yeah. down into the pantry. You constantly see that, but it's just this black, like void. And it's always there. It's always looming. At one moment, there is kind of a fantastical bit. Um, but it's always there just looming. And what's just quite beyond that? You get lots of shots, what's down there. But still, whenever they show the kitchen, there's that just ghostly sort of black void that I, I every time they showed that shot, I loved it. Because you would see people so the, disappear down into there and come out of there seemingly like a mist or like a spirit. It was really cool looking. Yeah. And I mean, the reality of this movie breaks from the reality of life. Because on the one hand, it looks amazing because surrounding it are these like walnut shelves that have this really like lovely golden light. Yes. That are, that are like highlighting all of these uh, uh, plates and dishes and whatever happens to be on those shelves. So aesthetically, it looks gorgeous because you have this black rectangle in the middle of this sea of gold. It looks incredible. Yes. But on the other hand, you think to yourself, practically, you wouldn't do that because that's just far too damn creepy to have <laughs> a doorway <laughs> that's pitch black right in the middle of your kitchen. Yeah, You'd be weird. like, I'm going to put a lamp in there or something. It's like a realm to another dimension. Almost. <laughs> exactly. It's really cool. Yeah. You know, you go through that and you get, you end up in Narnia or something like that. Um, yeah, That's it's, your kitchen. It, it, it's It's incredible. <laughs> Um, obviously, we both really love this movie, so I think this next part might be a bit, little bit redundant. But we do rate here on the Matinee Cast on a scale of one to four stars. Andrew James, what do you give Bong Joon Ho's Parasite on a scale of one to four? Yeah, I'd give it a pretty solid four. I would too. This is definitely one of the best movies of the year. This is I, I didn't get a chance to catch up with this at TIFF, and it was the movie that everybody was talking about. And I was, you know, I often come away from that kind of wary. Um, I, you know, the movie that we're going to talk about on the next episode had the same sort of effect where everybody at the film festival was talking about it and i think it suffered for me a little bit because i couldn't uh it couldn't live up to the hype but this was a movie that absolutely lives up to the hype it's an incredible movie a four-star movie one of the very best of the year um hey maybe you think that we're both crazy maybe you think that this movie is garbage or maybe you think that we're not being effusive enough maybe you think this is an all-time great movie let me know ryan at the matinee.ca twitter or on matinee underscore ca facebook.com slash dark matinee what do you think of Bong Joon Ho's Parasite. We are going to come back if in just a second. We're going to take a quick break, um, but we've got some more movies to talk about on the other side right after this. We're back. He's Andrew James. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Matinee Cast 232. We've been talking about the amazing Parasite, Bong Joon-ho's 2019 
possibly masterpiece. It's a, it's a tough word, and especially with a director like that who's had so many masterpieces over the course of his career. Um, obviously, we love it. And um, it's a film that actually presents a challenge when it comes to the other side, because as we were saying in the review, it's really hard to nail down exactly what this movie is. It's kind of a thriller, but it's not a thriller. It's kind of a heist movie, but it's not a heist movie. Um, so in one way, it lends itself to a lot of things, and another way, it lends itself to nothing. Um, the most uh, readily available comparison, I'd say, um, that we have already talked about, so I'm just going to kind of like wink at it and move on, is uh, another movie from this year um, that would make a really good double feature just in terms of two movies showing from this year um, is Us by Jordan Peele, um, which I won't really talk about too long because we talked about it on episode 219 of this show. But both movies, both uh, Parasite and Us, the one thing I will say about both is they really lend themselves to rewatch in terms of the details that they lay down, in terms of the structure, in terms of the commentary. So that's kind of an obvious pull that I'm just going to mention that these two movies go really well together and say different things about the differences in class. Um, so that that would be kind of my starter. Did you have any, like you kind of mentioned, like off the top of your head that you would kind of think of as, as kind of a starting point? Well. First of all, you, you like right at the review at the beginning of your review, you mentioned that this has sort of been a trend of 2019. Yep. So it, it, there have been a lot of like class warfare types of films this year and maybe the tail end of last year. For some reason, that's a thing. Um, I didn't really care for it all that much, but the movie Ready or Not. Oh, yeah. Uh, Shit. Kind of has that. I mean, definitely has the class warfare thing. It's a completely different movie, but it's got this weird, you know, violent struggle in a big mansion with a, you know, a, a poor person trying to sort of insinuate themselves into a rich family, although their motivations are completely different. Um, but it, you know, it's got the same, some of the same themes in kind of a crappy way. I didn't, I yeah, that movie yeah, we talked, good, um, but Corey, Corey Pierce, uh, came on and we did that, uh, episode, we did that show. I think it was just two episodes back. That was just before the, the September break. So probably episode two thirty. we talked about ready or not. And that's very much in there because I mean, that's the kind of story where somebody is being brought into the family. And I mean, she fits the part certainly more than certainly more than the Kim family. She fits the part. She she looks great in that dress. She seems to wander through that world quite effortless effortlessly. Um, you know, there, there's no talk of the, the the son in that family like reaching down to bring her into that family. That's yeah, that'd be that'd be a good one. Like mm -hmm. you say, it's it's much more goofy and dopey and and bloody. But yeah, uh, but yeah there's there's certainly class warfare all over that one. The only the other one that kind of came up and my memory is hazy on the the full plot of the movie, but in terms of tone and maybe just the fact that you know it's Asian uh, would be shoplifter shoplifters from last year. Yeah, that was actually going to be my first uh, my first example of a of a good uh, kind of pairing for this movie. Oh, perfect. Well, okay, I'm not completely. <laughs> but no, you're, yeah, you're not, no, you're not crazy. Why? Why do you think shoplifters is a good uh, double billing with this? Well, I think the first thing that came to mind was the way the family is living in um, in both movies. Like in in both cases, they're really kind of living in squalor. 
you know, and, and just trying to make ends meet and trying to, to get that hustle. And in both cases, the hustle is a family business, you know, like kind of like the way in Ready or Not, the family business is gaming. Um, in, in movies like Shoplifters and Parasite, the family business is hustling. And they don't, in both cases, I never got the impression that they're doing it maliciously, you know, like they're, they're not, they're never living high off the horse. They're, did you see the documentary about um, the guy who planned the fire festival? Oh yeah. Both. There's two of them that came out. There's two back of them. Back. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But like you look at that guy and how he is ripping off rich people and he's using it as an excuse to live very high on the horse himself. Yeah. Like his condo is incredible. He's, you know, he's able to afford the kind of lawyers that can get him away from that kind of fraud and still serve no jail time. He's able to dress the part. He's able to get into any room. That is a, a malicious hustle. The families and shoplifters and parasites, like those kind of people who are just, you know, for one reason or another, they're just in a shitty state of luck. They're just using their hustle to make ends meet. So it's kind of weird because you're you're empathizing with people who are doing bad things. Like they're you know they're they're costing people their livelihood and they're they're stealing. You know there's there's no two ways about it. They are stealing. And yet at the same time you're like, well, I sort of see why. You know. So in in both cases, it's 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 got a lot of empathy for the criminal, which I think is a hard way to a hard. It's a hard landing to stick. Yeah, it totally is. And I think both of those movies do it very well. Um, and yeah, it's it's weird when you when you realize that you're rooting for people that are kind of doing bad things, even if it's for maybe the right reasons. You Sometimes you feel a little icky, but you also feel good about it at the same time. It's, it's a weird, hard line to balance. Yeah, it's like... I don't know any people who are particularly rich, but I'd kind of be interested to see what they think of these movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, talk talk to some of my like upper class friends and be like, "Hey, watch this movie. Let me know how this works for you." <laughs> you um, might find it a little bit anxiety inducing, <laughs> for sure. But yeah, Shoplifters. Um, that was a movie. I was a little bit late to that. I think I only saw it. I, I, I came out. I believe it came out last year, and I only saw it this year. Um, it was, it's an incredible movie. That one's Japanese, um, directed by Corieta. Corieta, um, friend of the show, Bob Turnbull lives and dies by Corieta. He's made movies like, um, I wish and, um, like father, like son, um, his movies, they're all really subtle. Like we were talking about how the beginning of, Parasite was really low boil. Almost all of Corieta's movies are extremely low boil. Like the you know the big turning piece can be when you know when the mother doesn't answer to the phone. Um, it's he. It's an incredible movie. It's like it's a good call for sure. That I think as well would also make a really good pairing with with um, with Parasite. I did try to push it a little bit and see what I could come up with in terms of of other associations. Now I know you'll enjoy. One of the ones I came up with, it goes back, um, geez, it goes back eight years already. It's amazing how time flies. But I went back to 2011 and I thought about Pedro Almodovar and the skin I live in. Hmm. Oh, the, okay. Yeah. I yeah. love that movie. I know <laughs> it's it's an it's an amazing movie. It's the the crazy thing about that movie is actually it kind of feels to me like 
he's really been trying to beat it ever since and and he really hasn't it, which is crazy like it's a guy this man has multiple masterpieces and this is his latest one now the, the his latest one from what i understand the one that's out like right now i think it's called like not it's not called i always want to call it pain and gain but i know that's wrong um but he's got a new one now where he's with antonio banderas again that's supposed to be incredible and i'm going to see it this week Me too. but um but the skin i live in uh 2011 i thought about it because the patient in i skin the skin i live in is kept captive in the house um so i was trying to think of like the association of somebody who is forced to remain in one spot for a reason or another, like the same way that the the husband is down in the basement. Um, in in uh, Parasite, I was trying to think of somebody who was like kept in one spot, and I jumped to uh, the skin I live in because he's got this patient who he's put through. Yeah, spoilers for the skin I live in, in case you've never seen it. But he's put this person through um, a sex change operation, but does not let them out into the world. So again, it's a really lavish house, and they're treated very well, and all that jazz. Like this person at least gets to live upstairs; they're not kept down in the in the uh, in the storm cellar. <laughs> but same sort of thing that that kind of you can't ever leave this closed space. Um, I think would make a nice pairing between the two. Yeah, I can I can see that parallel or that. Yeah, it's also been a long time since I've watched that movie, so I think I really do need to to come back and, and watch it. It it is one of my favorites of his. Like it's it's he's got so many incredible films, and and it sometimes he's the problem. It's like Almodovar is competing against himself. Yeah. So I mean, his last movie. His last two, uh, you know, Julieta was his last movie three years ago. I didn't see it. I've never heard a single good thing about it. I'm sure it's oh, fine. I'm sure it's, it's great. Better than no, most. it's great. It, it, oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. It's really good. I was really surprised how much I liked that movie. Oh, okay. So I, I guess I'm going to have to, like, chase that one down soon. Um, Pain and Glory is the one that he's got from this year that I was trying to come up with the title. But same thing, like, I'm so excited. Is is fine. It's it's just fine. It's I think fine. I, I, didn't yeah. I talk about that on your show? Probably. And I agree. It's it's. <laughs> It's okay. It's yeah. watchable. It's yeah. It's got neat little moments to it. It, it. You know, if it was somebody else, I probably would have loved it. But it was coming off this like incredible run of films that like no like you know that we were talking earlier about Kubrick and how Kubrick just hit like home run after home run after home run. Um, Almodovar went like one, two, three, four. Went like six for six. You know, in a stretch between '99 and 2011. So eventually. You know, it's still going to be a double off the wall, but it's like, well, you know, you were putting them into the fourth deck <laughs> last last at bat. So even though you just, even though you're standing up on second base, it kind of feels like a letdown. It feels like a letdown. But with the skin I live in, I'll, another thing along with the correlation for Parasite is it's got kind of this, um, it does have kind of a slow build where you don't really understand what's going on until, oh, yeah. you know, halfway, three quarters of the movie where you start to put the, it's not like a mystery. It kind of is, but it, you just start putting these pieces together slowly in it. And it finally, you just go, Oh, I see kind of what's going on here. Now what? Um, yeah. And both of these movies his, do that. Especially since his movies 
um, are usually sold very cryptically. Like, I mean, it, it could be that we're at a disadvantage that we're not Spanish speaking, because I imagine that when, when his movies are sold in Spain, they're a little bit clearer in terms of what they're doing. But when you when you see it and you're reading subtitles and you're just gleaning pretty pictures, it's like, okay, well, I guess that's a scary one. Um, it's yeah, it, I, I think that that would make a, a neat double feature um, and just show you kind of how two masters approach a similar idea from very, very different angles. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Good call. The other one, I, I tried to think also of, you know, so Parasite is the movie where there is a con and the con kind of takes a turn and everybody involved with the con has to think on their feet really quickly. And I was trying to think of those kind of movies where a con goes sideways and everybody needs to run a little bit quicker to keep up. And I went back to one of my all-time favorites, which I think we've also talked about at some point or another, you and I. Um, I went back to Double Indemnity. Oh, yeah. Billy, Wild, Billy Wilder movie, 1940-something. So um, I know Kurt adores that movie. I think he and and or Bob Turnbull were people who uh, first turned me on to Double Indemnity back when I first met them all. That was also 10 years ago. Again, time flies. Um, 1944 is Double Indemnity, directed uh, and written by Billy Wilder, uh, based on the James Cain novel. And it's, uh, you know, if, if people have never seen it, it's the story of these lovers, these married woman and this insurance adjuster who collude to rip off, to kill and rip off her husband. And then they need to also work the con through the insurance company that the uh, that the, the the insurance man works for and watches everything around them just seems to be continually spiraling the drain. And that's I, you know, that is much more uh, dangerous and frightening than a lot of what goes on in Parasite. But I just did love the way that, you know, usually the heist is not the hard part. It's getting away with it. That's that much harder. And that's what I loved in both Parasite and Double Indemnity. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of a staple of all con movies and heist movies. Not all, but a lot of them about how things go wrong and how no matter how tightly you plan this and you you think you're ready for any contingency it's not ever going to go to plan. So, no. I mean, you could you know, dial M for murder, you know, tons of these little uh, long con or heist movies are kind of fit in that. So, yeah, that's a good call, too. Yeah, it's and I mean, it's it's crazy because in both Double Indemnity and in Parasite, you have people who think, I got this. You know, like in, in Double Indemnity, you've got an insurance adjuster who thinks he knows the cleanest way to get away with this because he looks at how people try to get away with this. In Parasite, you have the housekeeper who looks at how she can take advantage of this family because she has worked for another family like this and she knows how they think. It, it's, it's always interesting to watch one person try to outthink somebody else because they have the experience. Yeah, what could go wrong? Yeah, everything. All right, that's episode 232 of the Matinee Cast. I'd love to thank Andrew James for coming by. Doesn't come by nearly often enough. I got to fix that. Come on back, even though he's a seven-timer. Come on back on Monday, November 4th. We're coming back on short rest for episode 233. We're going to discuss Jojo Rabbit. Um, 
as I mentioned off the top of the show, uh, Andrew's not really writing as much on Row 3 anymore, but you're still pretty active on like Letterboxd if people want to follow you there, yeah? Yeah, Letterboxd is pretty much the only social media that I'm on, and you can, I'm Andrew underscore James. I have a Twitter account, but I don't, I don't really use it. I'm on Letterboxd pretty much every single day. Twitter's a bit of a dumpster fire these days, so you're probably yeah. better off there. Yep. Um, so in, in lieu of uh, the, the Twitter link, I will leave a letterbox link in the show notes uh, and people can follow Andrew there. Uh, my site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can vote, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, uh, Apple's podcast app, the iTunes store, everywhere you get podcasts and if there's a place you get podcasts and my show is not there let me know i'll put it there feedback on uh parasite can be left in the comment section of the site you can email ryan at the matinee.ca twitter where i'm matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts buddy before we call it a show see ya <laughs> nice for for andrew i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee.